If you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 16 today. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And that Bible should be on page 951. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself, and that's the reason that you didn't bring one today, well then please just take that one home. Uh, It's our gift to you. So let's read Romans 16 verses 21 through 27. You'll notice that these are the last verses in the book of Romans which we've been in for a little over three years. I'm pretty sure we're going to finish today. It would be embarrassing not to, so I'm pretty sure we will. Romans 16, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The key thing that we're going to be focusing on today is that term in verse 25, him who is able to strengthen you. This week we had a little plastic toy at home, this little plastic eagle. It's been in our house for a number of years, and it fell and it broke. And part of the wing broke. And, uh, and, you know, there was a little bit of concern about this. And, Daddy, can you fix it? And I looked, and it's a clean break. And I said, this is great. I'll get the super glue. We can do this. And as I was fixing it, Ben came to me and said, oh, that's the same place where it broke before. I don't know how long ago it broke, but it's been a long time. And it's broken in that same place. And apparently the last super glue was just not strong enough. And so we've had to do it again and again. But we got it fixed. Sometimes, though, there's toys in our house that break and they just can't be fixed. Sometimes it's just beyond repair and you just have to say, I'm sorry, that's the end of this object. We hope maybe you'll be okay. But when we talk about these things breaking, being fixed, being strengthened, when, when we have been broken by sin, which is all of us, from birth. That's a break that is beyond repair. And we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity as we get into a short series on the doctrines of grace. But sin before God is not just, uh, okay, well, it's a little minor imperfection. It's that we have rebelled against the holy God. It is a brokenness that's beyond repair. But what God is able to do in his grace, in his love, in his kindness is take what is beyond repair, what is impossible for man. The disciples said to Jesus, well, then who can be saved? And he said, with man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible, he says. And so he's able to take that brokenness that we were in in sin and not only to put us back together, but as we're going to see in the doxology of the book of Romans here, to strengthen us to be able to cause us to stand. So that we're not going to be like that toy that just keeps breaking over and over and over and you don't know if it's going to last, but he is going to do it. He's going to carry us through. 
That's going to be the main thing that we talk about today. So keep that in mind as we go to a couple of other things before we get there. Because we're kind of wrapping up this letter. And the first thing I want to bring your attention to, if you're looking on the back of your bulletin, it's actually not point one, it's point zero. Because the first thing I, I want to mention here is not something about the text of, or, or the content of the text of Scripture, but something about the text itself, some textual issues that are here in these final verses of Romans, and why it is that despite these textual issues, you can still trust your Bible. And when I looked at this, I thought I, I might just not even mention this because it's, it's going to come to the same conclusion either way, that you can trust the Bible that's in your hands. But I figure better that you get told this here in a believing church than one day have somebody who is trying to rip the Bible to shreds in front of you to say, why didn't your preacher ever tell you about the textual issues at the end of Romans? And therefore, you can't trust your Bible. It's not the Word of God. It's the Word of man. No, it's not the case. And so I'm going to very quickly address that, kind of walk you through it, so that you can be confident that as you pick up your Bible, you can say, yes, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. Uh, so a couple of things. One thing that is, is here is you may notice... Well, you may not notice. All right, so verses 25 through 27, we call this the doxology or the conclusion to the book of Romans. And an interesting thing, I don't know if anybody's version have different footnotes about this or anything like that, but verses 25 through 27, in different Greek manuscripts from different centuries of church history, sometimes those verses are put in different places in the book of Romans. So a lot of the Greek manuscripts, they're included right here at the very end. Sometimes in those Greek manuscripts, these verses are included at the end of chapter 14. There is one Greek manuscript where it's right in between chapters 15 and 16. There's some weird ones too where it's, it's included uh, after chapter 14 and then again at the end of 16. Uh, there's, there's some where it even is included at the end of chapter 14 and then chapter 15 and 16 are not there at all. They're just cut out of the whole book. And so, so there's been a lot of New Testament scholars who look at this and maybe will come up with little clever explanations here and there. And if you come to an unbelieving scholar, well, they're going to come to an unbelieving answer about this. But over and over, we keep coming to the conclusion that no, the way that it's laid out here in your English Bible right in front of you, this is the way that God breathed out these words and the way that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. The funny thing is that, that a lot of times when you have those little discrepancies between different Greek manuscripts, you just have to kind of go through this, this scientific study to try to figure out how do we compare this with the age of this manuscript and the provenance of this one, et cetera, et cetera. But this one, there's actually some historical evidence about how this happened. And what, what there is, the, there's a pastor named Origen uh, who, he had issues, so I'm not saying follow origin, but he, he wrote a, a commentary on Romans, and he mentioned in his commentary on Romans in the 3rd century A.D. that during the 2nd century A.D., uh, there had been this man whose name was Marcion, who was a known heretic. And Marcion had shortened the book of Romans. So Marcion apparently decided that the last two chapters of Romans didn't need to be there. 
And you can almost kind of understand, if you, if you weren't picking up the letter and treating it as the Word of God, why you might think that, because you get to chapter 15 and 16, and, and you almost have this feeling like, okay, the, the, the meat of the doctrine is over, and now Paul's just talking about his travel plans, and say hi to this person, say hi to that person, right? So, so, but apparently what happened is that Marcion cut off chapters 15 and 16, took this doxology that was at the end of chapter 16, pasted it at the end of chapter 14 instead. And so that's how we ended up with these different manuscripts that have those kinds of weird things. Where you get a monk whose job it is to copy the scriptures all day by hand, and then he's got one copy of Romans that doesn't have chapters 15 and 16, one that does have it, and over here you've got the ending, you know, the doxology at the end of chapter 14, all, all this kind of stuff. You can, they're just trying to do what they could. That's how we ended up with, but. We're blessed by God that here in the 21st century, we have access to more of the ancient manuscripts than at any other point in church history. And the best studies of the best, most reliable manuscripts keep on coming up over and over to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul actually did arrange the letter to the Romans in the way that your English Bible in front of you has it arranged. So all that just to say, trust your Bible. You really can. You really can, and when those, uh, those unbelieving people come and try to pick apart the Bible because there are different manuscripts, just know, hey, there's, there's ways to sort through those problems, and you can still trust your Bible. Uh, another thing related to that, you may notice that probably, if you're looking at ESV like me, uh, there is no verse 24. Instead of there being a verse 24, there's a footnote in my Bible that says some manuscripts insert verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Okay, so again, best most reliable manuscripts have no verse 24, so how did it get there in some of them? Well, what it is, it's the exact greeting at the end of uh, the letter of First Thessalonians. And so it seems that one of those monks was trying to figure out, what do I do with this letter that just cuts off because Marcion cut this stuff off? Well, I'll just, I'll put this greeting from 1 Thessalonians here. So it seems to be what happened, but that's why uh, there is no verse 24. And again, trust your Bible. Trust your Bible. So with that aside, let's start talking about what's here. And, and before we get to this great doxology of God's strengthening us, God's causing us to stand, let's see these people starting in verse 21, that Paul greets here at the end of the letter to Romans. He, he, he greets these companions. He greets three categories of people, those who are traveling with him on his missionary journey. He greets his scribe. And uh, he sends greetings from the members of the church in Corinth. I should say he's sending greetings rather than greeting them because he's telling the church in Rome, here's the people that I'm with. They say hi. All right? So who are these people? Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Now, Timothy is definitely the most famous person in this list. He's famous because there are two books of the Bible, 1 and 2 Timothy, that were letters written to him. Timothy was brought up in a believing household. His mother and his grandmother were both Christian believers uh, who were Jewish, and they had brought him up in a training in the Old Testament scriptures and explaining to him how all of it pointed to Christ. And when Paul came to Timothy's hometown of Lystra on his second missionary journey, 
Paul seems to have been impressed with Timothy. He recruited Timothy to come along with him on his missionary journeys. And so that's where you see now Timothy together with Paul on this third missionary journey. Timothy's later going to settle into the church in Ephesus. He's going to come there at a young age, because it says in 1 Timothy, let no one look down on you because you are young. He's going to be a young pastor of the church in Ephesus, the primary preaching elder there among other elders who Paul had gathered together to speak to in Acts 20. And so when, Paul, uh, when Timothy was there, Paul sent him those two great letters, First and Second Timothy, on pastoral ministry. So that's who Timothy is. And then there's Lucius who's with him. This is probably the Lucius of Cyrene from Acts 13, verse 1, who was an elder of the church in Antioch. But we don't know for sure. It's just probably. Jason, he says, is with him. This is probably the the same Jason that's mentioned in Acts 17, who got dragged out of his house in Thessalonica by an angry mob because he was letting Paul stay with him. And then it says Sosipater, or Sosipater. I don't know how to pronounce that. Do you? (laughs) So Sipiter, this is, uh, is the guy who's mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. He's called Sosipiter of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, but we don't know a whole lot about him. And then you get to verse 22, and you move on to somebody else who is Tertius. This is an interesting verse, isn't it? I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you say, wait a second. I thought this was Paul. If you look back at, at Romans 1.1, 1, 1, the very first word of the whole book of Romans is Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He says, I'm the one who's writing this letter. And then Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. What is that about? Well, what it's about is that Paul was using a scribe or an amuensis. And so Paul is the author of this letter, and what he seems to be doing is dictating this to this guy named Tertius, who probably has really good handwriting and is good at writing things down without messing it up because you don't have backspace and spell check and that kind of stuff in those days. And so Tertius is helping him out. It's an interesting thing to think about this process because this would have been a huge task. In in the first century A.D., when you were writing a letter to somebody on a papyrus, the average length of that letter was 87 words. The, the length of the letter to the Romans is 7,114 words. And so this is, this is a big deal. When you, when you open up the letter to the Romans or these other letters of the New Testament, you need to know that each one of these was a very intentional, big, expensive project These weren't just sort of letters that just got dashed off thoughtlessly. And so Tertius was enlisted to be the scribe, to take down the dictation from Paul. Uh, And uh, there's an estimate that in 2024 dollars, it would have actually cost about $3,700 to produce the letter to the Romans, just because of the cost of uh, all that's involved and the length of it. And so this was a big project. Tertius was involved getting it done. That's what that means, and at this point, it seems that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving his dictation, says, Tertius, say hi. And so that's what you have there in Romans 16, 22. And then you have greetings of the members of the church in Corinth in verse 23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. There's three people in the New Testament named Gaius. This is the one who's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, 14. 
And so he apparently has a, a house, uh, a decent-sized house where he can host people, and Paul seems to be staying there. It would be fascinating to me to get to identify the house of Gaius and what room was it where, where Paul and his friends were standing around and Paul composing the letter to the, to the Romans with Tertius in the room. I don't know where it is. That's okay. But the house of Gaius. And then he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. This is one of the very few members of the church at Corinth who had a high worldly position. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, that not many of you had those kinds of positions. Not many were wise according to worldly standards, not many of noble birth, etc., etc. But Erastus, a member of the church in Corinth, had this high position of being the city treasurer. And even to this day, there's still this big slab of limestone concrete uh, in the city of Corinth in Greece uh, that has an inscription about Erastus being the city treasurer. And so there he is, helping Paul in this project of writing the letter to the Romans. And then you have Quartus, who we don't know anything about, but apparently he's a member of the church in Corinth and is helping to write this letter. So what do we do with these verses before we get to that thing that I said we're going to focus on in the doxology of God strengthening us? Well, just a reminder that God uses real people in the work of his kingdom. Just like we saw as, as Paul was greeting all of those people throughout the earlier part of a chapter 16, this whole letter to the Romans is not just some kind of an abstract thing that's just these, these doctrines that are floating in the air disconnected with reality. Uh, this is to real people, from real people, to real people who are doing the work of the kingdom investing in it and making sure uh, that this is not going to just be something that goes into the air and never lands. But to take these great doctrines, these great practices of the Christian faith and put them into practice through real people. And so we can see that around us still, right? We can see that around us as we look and see the, the gifting and the work of the people that God has put in our church, in our lives, who are believers, who are serving faithfully, and we can say, say hi. And, and they send their greetings, and we can appreciate those brothers and sisters in Christ who serve, just as the Apostle Paul demonstrates in this letter. Well, let's think about this, this great ending, this great doxology of God who is able to strengthen you, him who is able to strengthen you. As we come to these verses, the last verses in Romans, verses 25 through 27, they repeat so many of the same themes that were brought up in the first five verses of the letter and that are throughout the whole letter as well. There's this idea of the gospel. In the, the opening of the letter, it's called the gospel of God or God's gospel. Here it's called my gospel. It's the same gospel. Saying I am preaching God's good news, God's gospel. It speaks in the opening and here in the conclusion about the gospel being preached beforehand through the Old Testament scriptures. It speaks of the gospel being about the person of Jesus Christ. It uses this term, the obedience of faith among all nations. It talks about all of this being for the name of God and for his glory. But all of this is now, at the very end of this letter, put into the context, not just of here's the things that are true, here's the things you should know, but here is what God is going to use to strengthen you, 
to him who is able, who is powerful, to strengthen you. That's our God. That's our God. Remember this, <clears throat> this thing I said, there, there's these toys that are beyond repair. We were beyond repair in our sin. How are we going to make it? Well, we're going to make it by the power of God. It's him who is able to strengthen you. Now, God might use pastors in your life. He might use Christian friends. He might use your own self-discipline. In fact, he's going to use all of those things. But what's going to strengthen you, what's going to cause you to stand and persevere is never going to be man, and it's never going to be yourself. It's always going to be God. He is the one who has the power, who is able. That's what that, that word able there means. There's, there's something in that that's hard to just get across with the word able. It's he has the power, this potent ability to strengthen you, to establish you, to cause you to stand. How is it possible that throughout the world that the believing church of Jesus Christ is going to stand? How is it that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it? Well, it's by the power of God. How is it that any particular church is going to stand? It's by the power of God. How is it that you, individual Christian, me, individual Christian, how is it that we're going to stand? Well, it's by the power of God. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Another doctrine that we'll get to here in a few weeks as we go through the doctrines of grace. I love that quote by John MacArthur. I've told it to you several times. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If it were up to your strength, once you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, to then keep yourself in the grace of Jesus Christ, if that were up to you, you would fail. If it were up to you to hold together the wing on that toy, it would fall off. But God has the power to cause you to stand. Another way that this is put in the Bible is in the book of Jude, which only has one chapter, and it's in verse 24 of Jude. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is the one who has that ability. When we start to think that we have that ability or that somebody else in our lives ought to be exercising that ability for us, we're off track. But God is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. If God has saved you by his power, God is also going to keep you by his power. And do you know how much power God has? It's a lot. I don't know about you guys, but we, like we've had three snowstorms. That's good. We're, we're done, in my opinion. I'm ready for summer, and in the summer, mo most of us at some point in the summer will go to the beach, and you'll, you'll stand down there, and, and, and you'll get to that spot where you're, you're not quite in the water, but you are, and you're standing on the, the edge, and the, the, the waves are lapping over your feet, and your toes are starting to kind of sink down into the sand, and, and, and boy, you can just get so relaxed, and then you know what happens out of nowhere? That big wave. Boom. And out of nowhere, you feel the power, and suddenly you are sitting down, and you are all wet and cold, and, and you realize, wow, just like that, I can get knocked off of my feet. And what a tiny thing that little wave is. 
And then there's bigger waves. There's these tsunamis that can take out whole cities. And then there's bigger things than that. And you think about all of the power that you have displayed in the world. Well, what about the power of the sun? That's a lot of power. Every bit of power that we have that's powering everything we do as humans and everything that's happening in the world on a physical kind of a level is essentially coming from the sun. And we're just taking in such a tiny, tiny portion of the sun's rays from, from all of these millions of miles away. And that's a powerful star. But you know what we just saw in the Psalms when we were praying from Psalm 147? That he put every star in the sky and named them the entire universe and then you think of the power of each one of those stars and they're all under his power and then you realize his power is infinite you could have an infinite number of universes full of these stars and it would never amount to anything compared to the power of god that is the power that god has to keep you to cause you to stand, to persevere you in your faith, to make sure that you believers, saved by his grace, can never be snatched out of his hand. It's impossible. Well, how does he do this, though? How does he carry out this power toward us? Well, according to this doxology of the book of Romans, the power, the way that he's going to use this power, the means for strengthening us, is this, the gospel. The gospel. He states this in three ways, and they're all introduced in the ESV with the term according to. According to my gospel. According to the revelation of the mystery. According to the command of the eternal God. But all of those are statements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be surprising when we get to the end of Romans that the power of God unto salvation would be the gospel. That's what he said in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what that means? That's the power that God has to save you from your state of lostness, to grant you repentance, to grant you faith in Jesus, to save you. But it's also going to be the power that God has to keep you to that final salvation. It's going to be through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how he saved us. That's how he's going to cause us to stand. I wonder if we ever start to think somewhere in our hearts that, that the gospel is something that God used to get us saved. And, and then the gospel is something that we leave behind as we now press forward by our own strength. Well, that, that's a sad thing. That's a neglect of the gospel. That's a reliance on the law. It says this in Galatians 3, 2 and 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We don't begin by the power of God's grace and then finish by the power of our works. It's going to be God's grace, 100%, all the way through. Even as we work, even as we show our appreciation, 
our thanksgiving to God for all the grace that he has given to us and seeking to conform our lives to his will, it is going to be all of grace. When we make it to the end and we stand before the throne of Christ and we're told, enter into the joy of your master, there's not going to be any hint in our minds that we did it. There's not going to be any hint that, boy, I got here under my own power. We're going to say, praise God for his glorious grace at work through this good news of the gospel. He says he's going to strengthen us, cause us to stand according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's the first according to. It's going to be through the preaching of the one true gospel. Paul had, had said back in, in chapter 1, verse 11, in this letter to the church in Rome, he said that he wanted to come there, and what, part of what he wanted to do when he came to visit Rome was that he wanted to strengthen them by imparting some spiritual gift, he says. Well, wh- what is the strengthening? Well, we find out here in verse 25 of chapter 16 that the strengthening is going to come according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. When Paul strengthens them, it's going to be God doing the strengthening in them, and the way it's going to happen, the means it's going to happen through is the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel. You know what that means for us? We need the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. We need to keep our minds on the gospel. We need to read about the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need the gospel to be preached to us. What do I mean by the gospel? I mean that you need to recognize that God is holy, that man is sinful, that Christ is the one and only solution, and that we receive his grace by faith, a faith that repents and turns to Christ and rests on him alone. We need to know that it is never going to be our works that can make us right with God. As much as we work, if you start to think, believer, that my works can make me right with God today. Go back to the gospel. Unbeliever. If you start to think to yourself, I'm going to pull it together enough that I know that I'm going to be able to present myself as a good enough person. I just hope I make it. You won't. Not by that. You you, you are not. You cannot. You are broken. You are dead in your sin. You are lost in those things. The only solution is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came, the God-man, to live perfectly what we have messed up in every way, to be perfectly obedient, to fulfill everything in his life, in his actions, in his words, and even down in the depths of the secret places of his heart. He loved God completely, and he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. You and I haven't done that. But he did that, and he did that in our place for us. And he he not only fulfilled all of the requirements that there were for, for humanity and for each of us, he also went and took the punishments that we deserve. We deserve to die under God's righteous wrath and to suffer for our sin eternally. But Jesus, the God man, could go to the cross and in one single act of righteousness of his offering up of himself could take the fullness of that penalty and put it away and pay it. Be the propitiation for our sin, which means the sacrifice where God's wrath is satisfied. 
for us in our place to give us the gift of eternal life. And he, he died, he was buried, he rose on the third day victorious so that we could have eternal life and that we could one day be raised from the dead to live in person with him, body and soul, forever and ever. Unbeliever, you need to believe that. The, if you wonder, how am I going to make it, you might have such a small view of that. You might have a view that's just, how am I going to make it through the day? How am I going to make it through the week? How am I going to make it to retirement? How am I going to make it blank? You know there's eternity coming. The answer to all of those, how am I going to make it through the day, it's the same as how am I going to make it to eternity. You've got to put your mind on eternal things, which is Christ. The only way you are going to make it in the end is if Christ makes it for you. You must trust in Christ. And when you do, you have received grace. And you can live and be forgiven and walk by grace and have uh, uh, the burden the burden lifted from your shoulders. This is what grace does. This is what the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ does. It takes that massive burden that was sinking your feet down into the mud as you're trying to walk in the world, trying to pretend that the burden's not there, the burden of your sin, and he takes it away and he puts it on himself and he does away with it forever at the cross. And he lightens our load. He makes it so that we can walk. So here's the question. Have you never believed that? Well, believe. Be converted. Come to faith in Jesus so that you can stand in the day of judgment. And believer, have you already believed that? Well, keep believing it. Keep going back to the gospel because it says right here that he who is able to strengthen you is going to do it according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You need to have your load taken off of your shoulders every day as you look to Jesus and say, he has already paid it all. And because he has already paid it all, I can stand firm in my faith. I can persevere by his power, by his grace. What is it about a church that God uses to strengthen people? to cause people to stand firm in their faith? That question gets answered a lot of different ways as, as churches kind of consider the question of, well, what do we do about people who are here and then they're gone, or kids who grow up in the church and then later they leave? And, and you know, what, what do we need to do as a church to, to cause people to stand? And lots of well-meaning Christians have, have opinions about that that they don't realize are, are man-centered and mistaken. They think, well, we could just get people to stay in Christ and grow in Christ. We could have our ministry cause people to stand if we just change the music, if we just have more events, if we improve the facilities, if we make the message more positive, if we make the message more relevant-seeming to particular issues in people's lives, if we, if we make the church more like all of the personal preferences of those people who left well, then maybe we could start causing people to stand. If the church would just change to be like my family wants it, then my family would really be fed spiritually. Well, you know what's happening here? It says, well, how's he going to cause us to stand? How's he going to strengthen us? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. 
Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying let's have bad music and bad programs. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if you start thinking to yourself, I'm going to shop around for a church that meets my preferences or even, oh, I heard so many people say something like this. I know the church that we're going to now is not as faithful as the church that we left, but my daughter just loves the programs and the music and I could not get her to go along with things at the old church, but now she is. You know what you're saying? You're saying to yourself, what is more important for my daughter's spiritual development is that I give her things that in her unbelieving heart she prefers over the preaching of the gospel. That's not what's going to cause her to stand. If she's going to come to Christ, she's going to come to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And if she's going to stand, if you're going to stand, it says right here, it's going to be through the preaching of the gospel. And so that's what we need as individuals. That's what we need as churches. This is the means by which God will strengthen us and cause us to stand is the centrality of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way that he, he indicates this, another way that he describes this gospel that God will use to cause us to stand is when he says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret before long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. What this is saying is that there is this gospel that was long hidden and now has been revealed. And it's just another way of talking about this gospel that God is going to use to make us stand when he uses that mystery language, the revelation of the mystery. In the Bible, when you come across the word mystery, don't think of it like a mystery novel. Well, the, the word mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden, that God is able to pull the curtain off of and show us and reveal. And, and it says, here, here is this mystery that was long hidden and now has been disclosed. And he's talking about the gospel, but it's interesting that he also says that this gospel of Jesus Christ is made known through the prophetic writings. And the, you know when those prophetic writings were written? He's talking about the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis. He's saying, okay, it's a mystery that's now been revealed, but it wasn't really secret. It's there all along. It was there in the Old Testament scriptures that God would save every person that he will ever save for all time by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was written there the whole time. But at the same time, there was something about it that was concealed until Christ came in the flesh, until Christ lived and died and rose from the dead. He said something similar in the very beginning of Romans. He says that he's talking about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Or in Colossians 1.26, he says, "...is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." But it was there all along in Genesis 15.6, you see justification by faith alone. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see these direct prophecies of Christ all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God curses Satan and says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is a prediction right there 
right after sin came into the world, that Jesus would come, born of a woman, and would crush Satan, even as it seemed like he was being crushed at the cross. You have in Isaiah 53, I don't know how anybody can read Isaiah 53 and say that Jesus and the gospel were not preached in the Old Testament. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Jesus. That's his substitutionary death for us on the cross. Right there in Isaiah. The gospel is promised in the covenants to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. The gospel is promised in the Old Testament in types and shadows. Things like the theme of the offspring and the land and the blessings. The prophets, the priests, the kings, the wise men. All of these are pointing us to Jesus. The gospel is promised in the Old Testament in all kinds of historical patterns throughout the Old Testament, especially the persecution of the righteous and yet their glorification that would come. And so all of this comes down to what Jesus said. After he had risen from the dead and he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room in Luke 24, verses 44 through 47, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which means the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see what that is? That's the revelation and the mystery. He opened their minds to get it, what was there all along. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He says, here is that mystery that was revealed. You think it's mysterious, you think it's complicated, you think you can never read your Old Testament and get it. Well, here it is. Jesus said, it's this. The Christ would suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached to you, and to all nations. That's what he says. It's the exact same thing it says here in Romans chapter 16. It is kept secret for long ages, now disclosed through the prophetic writings, made known to all nations. And then one more, according to. One more, here's how God is going to cause you to stand. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. This is another way of saying, through the gospel, through the gospel, the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That term obedience of faith, it only exists twice in the Bible. Once is here, the other one is in the introduction to Romans, chapter one, verse five. Some people read this and they, they say, well, this must mean that we're going to stand by way of our working obediently for God by faith. But more than likely, I'm, I'm going to side with men like Charles Hodge and John Murray and Robert Haldane and Martin Lloyd-Jones and see this as the obedience that is faith, the command to believe. This is the way that we become right with God, is by faith alone, in Christ alone. The command of the obedience of faith 
Just some other ways that he talked about it in Romans, if that doesn't make sense, just to, to kind of make it clear what it means to obey God's command of the obedience of faith. It says in Romans 3.26, God will be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of faith. It's the command of the eternal God to the obedience of faith. Believe, believe is the command. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or Romans 9.30, it says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. God is going to preserve us, strengthen us, cause us to stand through obedience to the eternal command of God, which is to believe. Reminds me so much of what Jesus said in John 6 when he's talking to this crowd and they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' answer is, to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's what we do, the obedience of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I have that to say to those of you who don't yet believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And to those of you who do believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't switch to a different system now that you have believed. Continue in the obedience of of faith trust in jesus and he will use that to strengthen you to cause you to stand god is the one who's glorified in strengthening us it says in verse 27 that all of this the purpose of this the reason he's going to strengthen us cause us to stand is for his glory he says to the only wise god be glory forevermore through jesus christ amen now I could spend several weeks preaching on this verse, but I'm determined to finish. (laughs) He says to the only wise God. One of the things that that means is that there's only one God. There's not a God for this people over here and a God for this people over here. We don't have to think to ourselves, well, if I I were to, uh, to, to go over to Saudi Arabia, then those people don't need to know about this God because they have their own God. Or if I, if I go to Lakewood, that maybe it's a different God. No, here's, here's what it says in Romans 3.29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He is the only God and he's the only wise God. His wisdom, he preached about this at the end of chapter 11, where he said, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Just a little reminder there when we start to think that maybe we're a little bit more clever than the scriptures. No, you're not. No, you're not. Believe what God has said. He's got it right. He is the one with all of the wisdom. Believe him, obey him. He is the only wise God. 
And as we come to him, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. We, we glorify him because he's the only God. We glorify him because he's wise. Glory forevermore, but this glory forevermore is through Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus said in, in John 5, 23? He said a lot of things, I know. Here's one of the things he said. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If the whole point of everything is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which it is, if that's the whole point, you can't do that apart from faith in Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't honor the Son, you do not honor the Father who sent him. If you have some conception of God that can be cut off from faith in Jesus Christ, you have the wrong God. You're not glorifying him. We come to God through Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But when we have come through Jesus, when we have had the obedience of faith, or exercising the obedience of faith, faith in Jesus Christ, here's the, this glorious truth. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That's how we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. This is how we know the only wise God to whom be glory forevermore. This is how we glorify him and enjoy him is in the face of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. All of this, it says in, in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forevermore. That's the point of everything. As Christians, the glory of God is also our good. And the glory of God is also our joy. And if you're wondering, well, what's good for me? Well, it's that God is glorious. Now, I know there's a lot of other questions, but, but what about my job? What about my family? Well, get this first in your mind. God is glorious. If you're wondering, how can I have things work for my good? And yeah, yeah, God's, God's great. Yeah, okay. No. Put God up at the top. Put him on your mind. The only wise God through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forevermore. Enjoy him. Know him. Know about him. Go to the scriptures. When you pick up your Bible in the morning to have your time with the Lord, have this on your mind. What will this tell me about God? Even in ways that I cannot figure out how it will possibly apply to my life today. Don't worry about that. What can I know? How can I know God? That's the point of your life. To, to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. I love what, what Jonathan Edwards says. This is in your bulletin today too. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. It is good to know God and it's good to be happy about it. That is so glorifying to him. You know what the, this wise God has done in his infinite wisdom to make us know him and glorify him and enjoy him forever? He sent his own son. He's given us the gospel. He's made it so that by his grace, 
we can be partakers of the divine nature, as he puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Not by our works, but by what he has done. This whole gospel, it's so simple and yet so easy to dismiss. And it's so wise and yet so easy to call foolish. It, it, it's something, this gospel by which the wise God is able to strengthen us is something that if you were to come up with your own system of how it is that sinners could be reconciled to the holy God, we would never come up with this. We would never come up with that it's by the second person of the Trinity assuming a human nature and then being crucified. And that that is then the plan. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But do you know what this word of the cross, this gospel is going to do for us that he's chosen? Us who will believe? It says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so God, by his gospel, will strengthen you, is able to strengthen you, and cause you to stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, Christ who is our wisdom and our righteousness, our life. Uh, Lord, we thank you that by your power that you're able to take sinful, broken humans and to save us, redeem us, put us back together uh, through the, the perfect, righteous sacrifice of Christ and through taking his finished work and applying it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that you strengthen us, that you cause us to stand. Uh, God, I pray that the gospel would come in the Holy Spirit and in power and be the power of God unto salvation to each individual who's sitting here, for our kids, for people who maybe we haven't met yet, who've just come in today for the first time, for, for maybe somebody who has appeared uh, by way of uh, very skilled hypocrisy to be a believer and yet is outside of Christ, Lord, I pray that any of those who are not trusting in Jesus would come to experience and take hold of that eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, I thank you that we're sitting here among so many who, who already have taken hold of that life by your grace. And God, I pray that you would point us continually over and over and over to this gospel according to which you will cause us to stand. Thank you for that. It's by your power and it's for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.